Zainab, it's a pleasure to have you with us on Network Capital. I have followed your work for the past 10 years, ever since you started uh, researching and when your first TED Talk came out. And when your recent book was published, I thought we must have a conversation because what we are trying to do here on Network Capital is to democratize good jobs for millennials and Gen Zs. And you've spent your entire career researching how this phenomena comes to light and now published this fantastic book, The Case for, uh, uh, for Good Jobs. So. Before we get started, before we start discussing the points, just tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get interested in this subject uh, and what was growing up like for you in Turkey? Oh, great. Uh, Urkash, first, thank you so much for having me and congratulations on your book as well. Um, and, and, and thank you for the work that you do to democratize uh, good jobs. So I'll um, how far back do you want me to go in terms of growing up in Turkey? <laughs> we want you to share. Ours is a long form, uh, you know, uh, platform. Okay. So we want our listeners to learn a lot more about our mentors and uh, uh, other leaders we bring on board. Feel free to go as far back as you like. So here are maybe a few things that might be helpful to tell you about who I am. Uh, one of the things is one early experience that um, that made an impact on me. When I was in middle school, um, my father had a small apparel company and, you know, small business. And, and, and um, in the summer, you know, I worked in the factory, in that small uh, factory on the, on the line and on overlock machines. And, and, um, and, and, and I think that early experience helped me appreciate that the frontline jobs are not as easy as they seem. There are so many ways to get it wrong and, and how important they are to the quality uh, of, the, of the merchandise that comes out, right? And, and, um, and, and it's humans living in those places. So, so another early experience perhaps that might be worth uh, sharing about who, who I am is I started playing volleyball um, in middle school as well in sixth grade. And when I was 15 years old, we lived in this town called Bursa. And in my town, I was attending the, 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 the middle school that I got into through a standardized test. It was the, the, the best uh, middle school and it went to high school, um, but we didn't have a good volleyball team. And I really want to be a volleyball player. So at 15, <laughs> I left home and I left Bursa to move to Istanbul. Um, and I ended up going to a school that did not require that standardized test. It wasn't, um, I barely went to high school actually. Um, and, and, but I played great volleyball and that's what got me to the United States. So I came here on a volleyball scholarship. Uh, went to Penn State. I don't think any of our listeners knew that. <laughs> and yeah, so so I came to Penn State and 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 I witnessed there what it was like to be part of a winning team. And these early experiences, I think, were really uh, formative for 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 me and in my career as well. Because when you look at what I do, I study operations management. So my my background is operations, and operations management is so much about continuous improvement, and that's what you know. Creating a system, operational excellence is about creating a system that improves productivity, improves um, quality, improves uh, cost all the time, right? That's continuous improvement is at the DNA of operational excellence. And that's what it is to be an athlete. You're always improving. Um, and it's teamwork, it's competition. You want to win. So, so I think so many of those things were, were, were helpful. And how I came to studying good jobs is... Um, I started studying uh, retail operations and specifically retail supply chains and supply chain management is all about inventory management, getting the right product to the right place at the right time. And as I was looking at lots of companies, one of the problems that I and my colleagues at the time, other researchers, we have found was that there were so many inventory related problems at the stores, at the stores themselves, that prevented customers from buying the product that's actually in the store and led to all sorts of problems. So, so products were in the wrong place, inventory data were inaccurate, many of the plans were not executed, stores were, were, were not functioning well, and that was costing companies millions of dollars. And when I looked into 
when we looked into what drives these problems, one of the drivers was labor practices. Stores that had high employee turnover had more problems. Stores that were understaffed had more problems. Stores that just um, didn't have the right people had more problems. And that's what got me into the intersection of operations and people management. And I, I will say, you know, coming to the United States um, with a valuable scholarship, living the American dream, because, you know, I didn't have to pay for my education at Penn State. And then I did my doctorate at Harvard. I didn't pay, have to pay for my education there. This country has been so good to me. But then I was meeting so many people during my interviews and their experience was completely different. They were smart, they were hardworking, some of them had multiple jobs, but they weren't making it. And that problem got to not just my head as a, as a, as a, you know, a business professor, but also to my heart too. And you know, that's why the work that you do is so important because you explain in through data and through stories that uh, it's in the interest of companies to treat their employees well. And it's good for the bottom line and it's good for long-term thinking. Can you tell us about uh, some of the case studies that you've covered in, a, in your book of retail stores and some of the dilemmas that they, uh, they face in order to strike this balance? Yeah, and, and maybe I'll, I'll tell you that, that you know, at, at a business level, so many leaders of uh, businesses like retail stores, call centers, factories, uh, restaurants, you know, they, they believe that they can't afford to invest in their workers, right? They, because in their environments, they think that low wages and the resulting high employee turnover and of course, poor service or poor, poor quality of merchandise are necessary to compete in their business. And, and my early research at, um, at Borders, Borders was a bookstore that's no longer with us. You mentioned case studies at, at, at um, even a company like Home Depot. Um, one of the things that I saw was when, when companies go cheap on labor, right? when um, they under invest in their employees, then they experience very high employee turnover and yeah. understaffing and that itself is very expensive so the direct turnover cost at companies that we work with during the last six seven years ranged from 10 percent of their payroll expenses to all the way to 45 percent of their payroll expenses but those these are the directly direct turnover costs hiring onboarding training time to full produ productivity but those costs pale in comparison to all the Operational execution costs, lost sales, uh, high waste, lost productivity, um, etc. that comes from poor execution. And those costs pale in comparison to competitive costs. Because when you operate with high employee turnover and low people investment, then th there are so many things that companies can't do. Um, there are basic management practices that they just can't implement. Like we have seen, um, they can't hire the right people and train them well. They can't empower their employees to make decisions. They can't manage capacity. They can't have strong managers. They can't have high expectations. I'll give you one example. Um, in, in, in one company, one of my colleagues, Sarah Kalak, worked in the front, in, in the front lines. And the hiring, she, she had just graduated from MIT. And she was applying to work at a frontline job at a retail store to sell merchandise. Now you wonder why somebody who just graduated from MIT is, 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 is taking this job, but the hiring manager did not ask her any questions because they were yeah. so desperate to hire, you know, because she showed up on time to the interview and she presented herself, she was hired. And when she was on the job, there were two expectations, come on time and don't steal. So what does that mean to the worker, right? Who takes that job? What, what, what do they expect? And of course, what, the, what does she think about the company? In her training, um, there was a computerized training. There were six trainees, but only four computers. So like two of them were not, the, and, and, the, and, and, and there were glitches. Um, what, what she was learning had nothing to do with her job. Her on-the-job training was done by someone who did not speak English. She only spoke Spanish and Sarah doesn't speak Spanish. And her training, on-the-job training was at, at the cash register, but her job wasn't to be on the cash register. So I'm giving this example to highlight how many basic things 
simple things go wrong in a business when they operate with high turnover and the managers are constantly fighting fires and, and, and constantly uh, trying to solve problems. This that was a very long answer of what, what I've seen. But it's very important just to lay the foundation of what we're going to discuss. When I was reading Sarah's case, I was struck one, like, you know, why she uh, joined uh, the company to work at the front lines. And then I discovered that you actually give this advice to your students that once you graduate, spend some time, you know, working on the front line, it'll give you an understanding of how to manage. Fully agree with that. And second was that it struck me that Sarah never even had a shot at doing the job really well. So I was... Uh, is that a thing that uh, a lot of these frontline workers are just set up for failure? Exactly. So Sarah, I mean, very competent, motivated person who took this job to really earn the 11 or $12 that she was making. Like she had that motivation and she wanted to learn as much as possible and she was set up to fail. Uh, she has, I mean, she, she has so many examples of how, you know, she failed when she was, shelving merchandise because she did not had she didn't even have a box cutter to, yeah. to 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 open the boxes to put stuff on the shelves one day um during her training she was left at the cash register and it was dramatic to be able to process people at the cash register when you don't know what you're doing a family both you know a bunch of things and she forgot to put one thing on the uh, in their shopping bag and she was devastated and she couldn't go after and tell them because there was no one else behind. So, so by design, she failed in the job. And here you have a very motivated, capable worker. And we see this uh, Urtkash over and over again. There, there's so much talent that's being wasted because the job is not designed because they don't have the resources to be able to do a good job. Yeah. I see so many people talking about, you know, educating people, upskilling them. But then I say, why don't we also upskill our jobs? Why don't we stop wasting all the talent that we're wasting in the front line in so many different industries? I think it's a good time to define what a good job means. And then perhaps we can contrast two companies, perhaps a McDonald's versus a Costco and see what are the pros and cons of various approaches. Could you please define a good job for us? Yeah, and I'll define the minimum conditions for a good job. But at a yep. minimum, in a good job, people need to be treated like a human being, not a pair of hands. And I think yep. everybody knows what that means. And in a good job, people have to make enough money to be able to take control over their lives. And when you don't make enough money to meet your budget for living, you end up working multiple jobs. You can't sleep. You're constantly stressing about whether you can pay rent, put food on the table. Uh, you can't hold on to your other job because your schedules are changing all the time. And in this system, um, people are caught in a vicious cycle of poverty because their low pay drives so much stress inability to meet their daily budgets meet, drive so much stress that they lose their health, mental health, physical health, even cognitive functioning, and then they can't do a good job. Um, I was struck by this research that showed that low pay was associated with 13 point drop in IQ. Because when, when, you're, when in your brain, you're constantly thinking about pay, money, because do I pay for this? Do I pay for that? Like you're constantly thinking about money. There is no room to think about anything else. And of course, these workers can't move up and they can't go up to it. Uh, they, they don't get promoted. So they're, they're stuck in this vicious cycle of poverty. And when pay is so low and you operate with high turnover, then companies end up designing a system that ensures that people are treated like a pair of hands, not human beings who can make decisions, who can improve performance. So those minimum conditions are so important and they're not met in many different settings. And sadly, those of us who make enough pay oftentimes underestimate the importance of pay for workers' well-being and for their ability to do a good job. In your book, you're able to explain how it also works for um, the top line paying people well, people treating people with respect, but it's not easy. 
and you talk about McDonald's as an example and contrast it with uh, with Costco and a few others. Could you explain where that instinct to cut costs comes from? Yes, the instinct to, and and I'll mention that instinct to cut costs, and then the other way, the Costco way, yes. the trade, you know, the the, the the other way. So, it, so the instinct comes from decades of what we've learned in business schools and in business in general, right? What have we learned? We learned that labor is just another input to production. And as a result, market pay is the right pay. So you pay what the market pay is. And even if it's not a living wage, we've learned that lean and mean is efficient. Lean and mean is not efficient. So, so that way of thinking prevents people from imagining any other way. Even when they're given the examples of, hey, look at this company, look at that company, they can't even imagine operating in any different way. But we can imagine because there are case studies of companies that are doing this. And we have an academic paper that also shows like this is a profit optimizing approach, but I'll focus on the case studies. Um, Costco, for example, um, the average pay for a Costco worker in the United States is $26 an hour. Just to compare that to the typical pay of a retail worker, uh, it's $10, it's about almost $10 more an hour. So, but Costco doesn't, and, and at Costco, you know, most of the managers in the front lines are, almost all of them are promoted from within. Um, Full-time employees have enough hours, they have, they have good schedules. So Costco invests heavily in their people, but it's not just investment in people. When I studied companies like Costco, Trader Joe's, Mercadona, which is a Spanish uh, supermarket chain, and, and Quick Trip, a convenience store chain with gas stations, these are all companies that compete on the basis of low cost. So they're not, they're, they're, they're providing their customers the lowest possible prices. And they're making a ton of money. And I asked, you know, how is it that these companies are able to win with their customers um, through low prices and, and make a lot of money and provide good jobs at, at the same time? The secret sauce to their success was how they design and manage their operations. The secret sauce was making a set of choices that by design, improve the productivity and contribution of their workers. And there are four choices that these companies all use. And by the way, these are the same four choices that um, hotels like luxury chain Four Seasons uses, uh, Toyota production system uses. These are the choices that are foundations for operational excellence. So those four choices are focus and simplify, standardize and empower, cross-train and operate with Slack. And I'll just give you one example, operate with Slack. Um, if you go to a Costco store, you may not see like tens of thousands of products that you might see at a different supermarket um, yeah. because Costco focuses and simplifies. You might not see, you know, 20 types of toothpaste. You might see three types of toothpaste. Of course, that means that Costco employees can be faster, more productive. They shop faster. They check out people faster. And that's why Costco pays more. But you also see a lot of employees. Um, because Costco operates with Slack and you might ask, you know, isn't lean and mean efficient? Actually, lean and mean doesn't optimize. Uh, <laughs> lean and mean is not efficient because when you operate with Slack, which is you stack your units with more hours of labor than the expected workload, now people have time to do a good job. Now sh the shelves are always stocked. Now you can process customers as quickly as possible through the checkout, that's higher sales. Now people have time to be able to experiment with different ways of displaying merchandise to be able to increase sales. And now you can hire the right people and now you, you have time to lead them. Now there's no burnout. So operating with Slack enables higher productivity, higher sales and enables Costco to pay their employees a lot more. And it also makes the job a good job because now you can do a good job. You're not stressed all the time and you have achievement. You shine in front of the customers as opposed to in Sarah's experience, you were failing in front of the customers because of the design of that particular job. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, can you also give us an example of companies that have reached out to you for advice or, you know, want to implement good jobs, but you've said no to and explain the reasons why? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest surprises um, when my first book, The Good Job Strategy, came out in 2014 was, you know, I thought people will say, oh, I don't like this book or I don't like the insights or why is she talking about our company? But 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 one nice uh, surprise was how many leaders reached out to say, we've read this, we're in that vicious cycle that you're describing and we want to get out. Can you help us? And Initially, I said no, and and the reason that I said no, and and this might be because I didn't have the courage at the time to to be able to help them, but I didn't know how to help them. I didn't know how to implement system change. But then uh, one of my mentors, Roger Martin, um, who is the chairman of our nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, he said, if you want to make a difference, real difference, then you need to learn how to make how to have companies make this change and 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 to be able to learn you should help them and i said okay i'll help them if you help me um and and so we started this nonprofit good jobs institute with sarah uh, who was my student at the time my, my my star student and we have worked with dozens of companies during the last six seven years and we rarely say no to a company that's really motivated to do this because our objective is to um, to improve 10 million low-wage jobs in the United States. We will say no if the company is a, um, is a consulting business and their employees are already making a living wage and you know they're high-paid people and they want to make the job better. There are so many others who help those companies. We, we, we say yes to frontline businesses that could unlock that productivity and as a result, pay their employees more so that we can create better businesses and a more just society. Have you, uh, have you encountered a certain set of organizations being able to bring about a complete transformation by implementing a good job strategy? Yes, the, the, um, our, when we started this Good Jobs Institute, um, Urkarsh, our, our theory of change was if in the first five, six years, if we can show a couple case studies of success, because, you know, it's one thing to be Costco or Trader Joe's or Quick Trip, you're born that way, right? You've been, you've been working that way for years, but it's another thing to be another company that's in that vicious cycle and a completely different system to make that system change. So our theory of change was if we can show a couple strong examples of system change, then we can encourage other companies to change too. So those are the examples. And some of those examples are described in the book. So, so the, the, the success stories range from, you know, two units of a restaurant chain, the owner of two units of this barbecue chain to a $60 billion retailer. Um, and, and in these settings, and we can get into like what made it possible, but I will just say the outcome of this system change was in all of these companies from Quest Diagnostics call centers to Sam's Club um, uh, warehouse clubs to Mudbay. This is a this is a retail chain that sells products for pets, for dogs and cats to Moe's Original Barbecue. Um, the outcomes were one lower, much lower employee turnover ranging from you know, reducing it by 25% to cutting it more than half, um, much higher productivity, labor productivity, asset productivity, and higher customer satisfaction and sales. It's fascinating. You gave a TED talk in 2014, I believe, which talked about the Spanish retailer and the same retailer yeah. is also mentioned in the book. So you've now at least seen this organization for nine to 10 years, probably more through your research. Talk to me about consistency and improvement in an organization like that. Yeah, and one of the wonderful things has been, you know, the, the company you're mentioning is Mercadona. I studied Mercadona in 2009. Wow. It's been many years, uh, or 2009 or 2010, right? But regardless, it's been more than 10 years since I've studied them. And this company is still winning with their customers. This company is still doing what it was doing before. But the reason that we're still talking about them, Costco is the same way, uh, Quick Trip is the same way. The reason that they're still winning is because when you have this mentality that we're going to win with our customers and we're going to create that winning team that's set up to succeed, you're constantly improving the business. 
that continuous improvement is in the DNA of the organization, and that continuous improvement enables them to adapt to changes, to implement changes, and to become stronger and stronger over time. So, so it's been wonderful to look at those companies that I studied so many years ago and still talk about them in a positive way. And I think, and that is not to say, right, uh, some leadership could come and not mess things up. There's no guarantee, of course. Um, but when I, and, and, and so things could go wrong for Costco or Trader Joe's or, or, or Quick Trip. But what has enabled them to stick to it so far? Yeah. I think one is discipline. Um, these companies have incredible discipline in one, adding only what creates value for their customers. One of the ways in which companies tend to lose their focus and, and, and lose what makes them great is that they lose that focus on the customer and their value proposition. And at Costco, for example, and Costco has changed, adapted so much over time, but when they're thinking about a new service or a new product, uh, they always ask three questions. They say, and, and, and let me emphasize, Costco competes by providing their customers high quality merchandise at the lowest prices. So that's how they're trying to win with their customers. So when they add a new service or product, they ask themselves three questions. Can we do this well? Can we save our customers money? And can we make profit from this? If the answer to these questions, all of them is yes, then they'll experiment to see if this new service or this new product makes, makes sense. But if the answer is no, then they won't do it. This is how they create discipline and, and focus on their value offering. And some of these companies also have um, values-based constraints. For example, you might one value-based constraint might be, um, we're not going to lay off people, right? That's our policy. We won't lay off people. Once you make that, a company policy, then you have discipline in how you run your business because now you're more careful about growth. You're more careful when you hire someone. You're more careful about their development. So, so some constraints that you impose on yourself when it comes to growth, when it comes to laying off people, when it comes to what you add, those constraints can create innovation and can enable companies to stick to, um, to, 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 to what made them great. And you've invited some of these leaders to speak in your class from uh, um, from different organizations. When uh, when you make your students meet them and ask them questions, what what surprises them the most? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think um, again, my students come to my class. Many of them want to believe that investing in people is good business. Um, but many of them are also skeptical, right? They don't think because they can't imagine. Like they, they again, the thinking in business is lean and mean is good and market pay is the good pay. Like you treat your people like any other input. So, so case after case, when they see the same thing over and over, that starts changing their mind. And then they meet these leaders. And, and um, like one of my students wrote to me and he said, before meeting Jim Sinegal, he said, I was reading about Costco and it's just too good to be true. And then I met Jim Sinegal, like, wow, what, I wanna be a leader like him. They meet Chet Cashew, who is the CEO of Quick Trip. Again, they're thinking this is too good to be true. And then they see Chet and they realize that these business leaders are not doing this just because it's the right thing to do, although they all wanna do the right thing. They're so driven by doing the right thing, but they're doing this because they have tremendous conviction that this is the smart thing to do. And, yeah. and I think sometimes what also surprises them is how when it comes to some of those competitive decisions, ethical decisions, these leaders don't just turn to their numbers for analysis. They, they ask themselves, like Costco asked themselves those questions, they ask themselves, is this the right thing to do? Um, and if it's not the right thing to do, they're not gonna do it regardless of how much that thing could improve sales or reduce costs. Yeah, 
And you also take your class, uh, your students to uh, their factories sometimes to see how work actually gets done, which I think is really important. But uh, there are some factories and some warehouses that really stand out with the way the workers are being treated, the, the kind of decision making uh, that you observe there. What makes them stand out? Yeah, um, so we I teach a course called Managing Service Operations, and and I have 170 students, so I can't take all of them to all the visits. But we we go to visit the Costco store um, with uh, with Jim Senegal and 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 Costco workers. And what makes them stand out is how when you talk to the front lines, how they feel like owners, even though they don't own the company. Right? They will tell you about the business as if it's their business. Uh, the meat manager tells my students about how much he was able to reduce shrink, how much he was able to increase sales. Um, another manager will tell my students if they ask a question about sustainability, how they've been able to reduce their energy costs um, and, and, and to become a more sustainable store. So one thing that I think surprises them and, and, and that we see over and over is how much they know about their business, how much they have this improvement mindset. And it's the same thing when I visit uh, factories that have implemented the Toyota production system. The front lines, they know what they're doing. They're always thinking about improving the business. The, the definition of Toyota production system, again, people confuse this with lean um, yeah. and lean. In, but the definition of Toyota production system, according to people who work at Toyota, and I work with, you know, with, 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 with my colleagues at Toyota, is a culture of engaged people solving problems to improve performance. Yeah. It's the Toyota production system. It's a culture of engaged people solving problems and, and when they problem secure to improve performance. And, and that's what you see when you visit these um, operationally excellent companies. Yeah, the sense of ownership uh, really stands out. I, uh, I could feel that in internet companies, the good ones, and uh, when I was going to this particular case in your book. I want to talk about McDonald's a bit because that does feature in, in the latest book. McDonald's has done quite well for itself, paying its employees what it does, and it's a successful company. Do you think that they should do more? If yes, for what outcome? Yeah, I, I hesitate. I've never worked with McDonald's. I hesitate. I mentioned them in the book because um, in Winning on Purpose, a book uh, wrote by Fred Reichelt, the the, the 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 person who invented net promoter score nps yeah. um, he has a chart and the chart shows in the restaurant industry the companies that have you know what the what what the nps of the companies uh is and 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 their performance um and you see that mcdonald's is a company that had that have had that that, that has had um very low net promoter scores they have very low customer loyalty, according to um, to that chart that I saw in the book. But McDonald's have been around for so many years, right? For for decades, and they are growing and they're profitable. And I mentioned that example to show there are different ways to make money. There are different ways to grow the business. You can grow your business by not having loyal customers. Um, by simply increasing the number of stores, by simply adding more products, by simply adding more services. And that's one type of growth. But I would say, and Fred Reichel says, that's a weak type of growth because you're not really growing the foundation. And there's another type of growth that companies like, like Costco, In-N-Out Burger, Trader Joe's, Quick Trip, they do, which is you grow your sales, but you grow by winning with your customers. Yeah. That's the that that's that 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 is another path to profitability and growth, and that is a stronger path to profitability and growth. Well, but I would not make any recommendations yes, to any organization without knowing uh, knowing them. Yeah, just to clarify, uh, yeah, I mean, we we didn't mean that you should give McDonald's advice or something, but this was an important part of NPS, etc. And you know, as an entrepreneur myself, running two companies, one in edtech and the other blockchain space, especially uh, in the last three years, it's so important that the customers that you have right now, they are treated well, they feel yes. valued because the cost of acquiring customers, CAC has increased a lot. So you can't constantly spend more and open more stores. Capital has become more expensive. 
So this particular strategy makes financial sense and ethical sense and you know, seems to be in the right direction, even for yeah, and, and I will say, you know, you asked me about what companies did you not work with? Um, but when I think about what companies have been able to make this change during the last six, seven years, they have been the ones whose leaders said, we want to win with our customers. Yeah. What does it take to win with the customer? Because losing a customer is expensive in any business. In, in some, of course, where customer acquisition costs are high, it's super expensive, but it's expensive in so many different businesses. So for them, they ask, what does it take to win? Well, you can't win if you don't have a great team that's set up to succeed, right? If right. you can't, like, it's, just, it's, it's, it's as simple. So they said, we want to win with our customers. To be able to win with our customers, can we do that if we don't execute well operationally? No. If we can't execute, you know, can we execute well operationally if we have high turnover? No. So for them, it was obvious that to win with the customers, we have to be frontline centric and we have to invest in our workers and we have to design their job so that um, we can invest in them and they can they, they, they are set up for success. You also talk about uh, Jack Welch, your mentor, and he, like, there was a particular uh, discussion. I found it revealing. So could you tell us about what the context was? Jack Welch being who he is, is has been pretty instrumental in the way culture around work has been shaped. How did your mentor sort of change your mind about it? Or what, what happened? Yes. So I, I, I started the doctoral program at Harvard Business School in 1997. That shows you, you know, my age. But, um, and, and, and my mentor was Kent Bowen. And at the time, if you took courses in strategy, um, even in leadership, you would for sure see a case about Jack Walsh and GE. And Jack Walsh and his principles were revered. And but by, by, by almost everyone except Kent Bowen. Um, so as a young doctoral student, I remember Kent telling me one day, he said, you know, someday somebody is going to write a book about how much value those principles destroyed. And in fact, you know, last year there was, a, or two years ago, there was a book that came out about Jack Walsh and, and um, how, how much value those principles dis, de, destroyed. Uh, one day uh, we were in a seminar and the guest, uh, the academic guest was talking about revenue management, which is about changing prices um, and to, to, to optimize uh, revenue. And Kent asked this, uh, this academic and he said, why are these companies playing games, pricing games with their customers instead of running their business well? And his comment about GE, his comment about revenue management, I couldn't at the time quite grasp deeply because I thought, well, because this is how you make money. But his way of thinking was customer-centric, not financial-centric. You don't do everything that increases your revenue. You don't lay off 10% of your workers every year, right? You don't, those are, you don't run your business to meet your earnings targets every quarter. This is what Jack Walsh was great at doing, right? I mean, GE was a like stellar record of meeting their targets every quarter after quarter after quarter. That's not the way, financial centric way is not the way to run a business. He was teaching me customer centric way is the way to run a business. Of course you have to make money, um, but, but you have to constantly think about improving the value of products and services you offer to your customers and that's good business. And he also taught me that um, good businesses is one when front lines are set up for success. I remember before teaching my very first class, um, an operations class, he took me to a Toyota factory. He said, you cannot teach operations if you haven't been in a Toyota factory. So that there are so many things that I've learned from Kent uh, as a person about what it means to invest in someone and, and their development. But I also learned how to think in a customer-centric way. Is it possible to be uh, the most customer-centric company without being the most employee-centric company? You know, in the service settings, uh, when the frontline employees are constantly interacting with customers, it's 
so difficult to be customer centric without being employee centric, right? In perhaps in a factory setting, in a fulfillment center setting, you could do that for a while, especially if you're willing to give up some profits. Like Amazon is, a, is an example of, of, of a company perhaps uh, that comes to mind. But in a service setting, I would say it's almost impossible to be customer centric without being frontline centric. Um, even in, 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 in factory or, 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 or um, non-customer facing settings, it's really difficult to be customer centric without being frontline centric. Because frontlines are the ones that are doing the work. So they're the ones that are closest to work. They're the ones who can improve the work all the time. They have the ones who have ideas. And if you're not frontline centric, you're not gonna be improving. Absolutely. Um, you have millennials and Gen Zs in your classroom. Millennials and Gen Zs are mostly the ones who come to network capital as well. What is the attitudinal shift you've observed in the last years, last few years, when it comes to working at or thinking about jobs, good jobs, and sort of okay jobs? Yeah. One of the things, um, I'm, I'm always inspired by the next generation, right? Because they're, you know, they have, they have seen all the others and I think each generation improves over time. So it's, it's, it's just inspiring for me to see, uh, to, to see the next generation. Um, one of the things that you do see in the classroom and in my interactions with, um, with students is how much they care about justice, right? How much it could be social justice, it could be environmental. So they, they care about doing the right thing. Um, and, and that's inspiring. And they're able to think differently. And that inspires me that the world that they're going to create is going to be um, better than some of the decisions that my generation has made. Yeah. As you, uh, as you look at the last uh, you know, decade or so when you worked on this, what are some things that you've changed your mind about on your research and methodology and outcomes that you've come to when it comes to Good Jobs Institute? And if you haven't, that's fine as well. But we love asking yeah. audience about rethinking. Actually, one of the things that I've always learned is system change is really difficult and most people will resist change. Mm. And company after company, workshop after workshop, we have seen how many people at all levels want to make this change. When somebody in merchandising in a retail environment or somebody in product design um, in another setting finds out about how much their decisions prevent the front lines from doing a good job or prevents the front lines to be able to be paid more uh, or have a, a, a good life, um, they wanna change. So, so that has been, you know, I've changed my mind that no, people are not resistant to change. They're resistant to changes that they don't buy into and they don't see um, reasons for, but people want to embrace this change if they're allowed to. Absolutely. Um, let's imagine that you're in Davos. All the or many Fortune <laughs> CEOs are uh, sitting in the audience and uh, you have to make a data-centric presentation on how should they think about scaling good jobs. Can you give them like three points? I, I hear Fortune 500 CEOs love three bullet points. Yeah, I always dislike those like three things. <laughs> I, I'll be completely honest with you. But one of the things I will say, um, and, and good job system requires imagination and creating a much better system. And right. it is almost impossible to convince people just with data. But if I had to use data, um, I would say, look, you're already paying for low pay and high turnover. You're already paying for it with high turnover costs, direct costs. You're already paying for it with lost sales, um, mistakes, poor service, waste, low productivity. You're already paying for it because you can't hold on to your customers. And you redirect those expensive expenses into your employees. And then I would ask them the question, a very simple question. Do you think that you can win with your customers if you don't have a great team that's set up to succeed? 
that's a really powerful uh, audience. We're going to make sure that this actually makes its way to to Davos. Uh, now they're going to make sure that they don't invite me to Davos. <laughs> <laughs> I think the World Economic Forum, uh, Professor Klaus Schwab wrote the foreword of my book. I feel that the forum genuinely cares about scaling good jobs. And at least through the future of work reports that I've seen, um, I think they'll be very interested in learning more about it. Um, in fact, the forum has a book club. I'll being the person uh, who I know, maybe they can make it the book of the month or something of that sort. At least I can try. So I uh, have no marketing bones in my body. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, just like uh, coming towards the end of it, this is this requires policy change, change in terms of attitudes of uh, CEOs, young professionals, academics. It's a long-term game. What do you see the role of Good Jobs Institute and your own work? How do you see that evolving and shaping like uh, the jobs of the future? I think as we think about the future, there will be a lot more demand for good jobs. Uh, yeah. And I think about the future, not just about the technolog technological changes um, that are going to affect a lot of people that do cognitive uh, type of work, right? Not hands-on type of work. Um, they're coming after, you know, uh, the, the white-collar jobs. So I think that's why people are so freaked out about, about it. Um, but I think about some of the trends in certain countries, like in the United States. It's not everywhere in the world, obviously. But people not having as many children, uh, baby boomers retiring, and, and the need for more jobs in care sectors, in service sectors. So there will be a lot of these jobs and there may not be enough people to have to take these jobs. So as I think about the future, I think companies will need to figure out how to design a system that enables them to attract the right for right verse and, 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 and retain them. And, and I am hopeful that they will bring up their game and make and, and make changes to uh, provide a compelling place to work for, for, for people. I wanted to ask one thing that is not in the book. So please tell me if uh, if you need some more time to get back on this. Have you looked at gig economy and jobs primarily on the internet, or do you have recommendations for how to create more good jobs, which are primarily internet jobs? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We talked about the gig economy, but so many of the service sector jobs had, had been working like that for, for a long time. Like in retail stores, in restaurants, so many employees are part-timers. They, they have, uh, they, they receive their schedules one or two weeks in advance, their hours change all the time. So they almost work like gig workers or not, although legally they're not um, gig, gig workers. Um, one of the things that I encourage people to think about is how important it is to do a good job in a particular work. So, so I remember there were so many business plans about gig workers in, um, even babysitting, house cleaning, um, supervisory services. Uh, people were having business plans about ha having gig workers in restaurants. So you can put plug in you know, different people to different places in, in terms of demand. But what does that say about the work itself? What does it say about how much it takes to be experienced in that work? Teamwork, the opportunity to do a good job. So, so I encourage people to think about the work itself and say, What's the value of this work? And, and do we just want anyone to do this? Or do we want people who have a sense of belonging, who, who, who are trained to do a good job, who are motivated to do a good job to be, to be doing that? I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm answering your question, but. Um, yeah, it is super helpful to think about. Uh, so in Oxford, I wrote this paper critiquing the philosopher's work about uh, jobs. He was making the case that uh, most jobs on the internet, gig work specifically, is really discriminatory. It barely pays any income. It, the hourly wages are not enough. There's no job security. There's no health insurance. These are all valid points, by the way. So I agreed with him on that. But I was making the case that you can create more good jobs on the internet through better ways, and work in itself is meaningful. Uh, but I found some of these arguments compelling from his side. And when I read your book, I found a lot of data around it. 
but not on the gig economy. So I thought I'll maybe ask. Yeah, you but but thing. what this person was making a case for is exactly what happens in for normal jobs, yeah. right? Doesn't pay enough, doesn't pay enough. Um, does so yeah. So which is why it, and there was a lot of uh, synergy there. Um, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Are any parting thoughts that you have for our listeners who are thinking about this whole work, future of work, good jobs issue? Yeah, one of the things that I would love to leave your audience with is how meaningful this change has been for leaders who are able to make this change. Hmm. Um, I remember um, Tim Simmons from uh, Sam's Club, and he was talking about how you know, when Sam's Club announced the first uh, pay investments, they increased pay of frontline workers, a subset of workers in their stores, five to $7 an hour from a basis of $15 an hour. That was life-changing for people. And when they announced that change, there were tears in the room, right? And, and people said, oh, I have to call my wife because now I don't have to have a second job. So, so... Yes, business is business, but business is also very personal. And the decisions, business decisions that we make every day, especially operational decisions, affect the lives of human beings. So I encourage people who are watching, who are listening to always remember that what my um, former colleague, the late Clay Christensen said, the business being a manager could be the most noble profession if it's practiced right, because the types of decisions that you're making impact the lives of people. So it's, it's a good reminder um, for, for, for all of us. What a fantastic note to conclude on. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book and I encourage everyone listening to this or watching this to check out the book uh, and leave us a review on Amazon. I think, uh, Zeynep would enjoy reading what people have to say, how they are trying to democratize good jobs in their own work lives. And uh, any other um, ways in which people can comment and be in touch with you, perhaps Twitter or something, please let us know, Zeynep. That would be great. Um, and and, and goodjobsinstitute.org has a bunch of information, free tools and resources that uh, that you can use. Thank you very much. I hope to see you soon and congrats for writing such an important book. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.